Hello, dun 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 dun. Blair music, Blair music. Here comes uh, uh, Steve Martin or whoever. Hi, welcome to the Waits of Cinema Oscar Best Picture Podcast. Oscar time. Ada. Yes, welcome to and also welcome to 2022. Um, so I, you know, life happens and stuff. I guess that's why we haven't gotten this episode out to you yet. But here we are, guys, and. Uh, you know, it's a good time to record this because uh, I was wanting to wait, and as I'm sure maybe you were too, Corey, to... Oh, by the way, I introduce myself. I'm Jack, and... Trash Panda Corey. Trash Panda Corey. And we're going to sift through, really, this time, not so much the trash, but, you know, the best films of uh, that came out this year. And some trash. Some trash. <laughs> well, we'll see who, you know, if we may not... We may not agree on all of the things that you'll call trash or things that you will call trash based on watching one scene and <laughs> determining trash. Um, but yeah, we wanted to wait till the Oscar nominations were announced and that was uh, a couple weeks ago. And it also gave us time to watch uh, a couple more of the films that were, were nominated that we wanted to see. And now we feel pretty good about the list that we have uh, put together. And that's, um, what we're up to tonight. Um, and the way I wanted to structure this, uh, is that we will talk about first the best picture nominees and go ranking wise from the kind of what, what well, really it's my list and Corey will react and give some comments based on what she's seen. We'll go from least, uh, favorite to most favorite and then, um, give our, uh, top 10 of the years uh, of the year. <laughs> it would be a much longer one if we were giving it to years, uh, plural. But, um, and along the way, we'll we'll probably talk about some of the films that have ended up on our respective lists. And then, you know, we'll, we'll kind of jump around. Some films we won't talk about as much because we actually have talked about them already on other episodes um, at length, but we may touch on them briefly and talk about the general amount of nominees. And um, in general, I think we could even, before we even fully get into the ranking, like in general, like, are you pleased with the kind of crop of nominees, like across the various categories? I, so, I, it's hard to comment on the best picture race. Cause there are multiple movies I haven't seen. Although there's at least one movie that I would put on a worst film to the year list. <laughs> I would say... Yeah. I have some beef. Not with... The where, no Corey, where's the beef? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's... let's what, where's the Wendy's commercial and all this? I think there are some glaring snubs. So when I look at an individual category, yeah. it's not I think to myself like, oh... Four of the five of these nominees are trash, but I feel like three of the four main acting categories have glaring snubs. Yeah. And Best Picture, I feel like, is a really mixed bag because of my top ten of the year. Hold on, let me count. One, two, three of the movies in my top ten are nominated for Best Picture. So that's not terrible. But... Yeah, honestly, though, you know, honestly, that's actually kind of the same for me. <laughs> now, there are a couple other films 
in my list that have been nominated in other categories. But you're right that there were some, like, and I think, you know, that's the case every year. I mean, we could point to every Oscar year and say, like, why wasn't this nominated here? This was, like, such a mind-blowing, heartbreaking thing that I saw. You know, this one, you know, they, they, of course, we the much longer discussion comes when, you know, the, the Oscars don't really recognize comedy or horror like they do as serious genres. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it's the nature of the beast. I, I, I think... My impression in general is that this crop is a little better than what we had last year. Yes. You know, even though, like, there were a couple of really great films that were nominated, and it was cool to see, you know, Nomadland and Juice and the Black Messiah uh, win some awards, but, um, but it was not a great Oscars, and the show is now kind of notorious for its... Uh, kind of odd presentation uh, because it was produced by Steven Soderbergh and he decided to make it this different kind of thing that I think in the moment I appreciate it, but if I'm sure if I went back now, I'd probably be like, hmm, I don't know. I was into it at first, but then my mood curdled as the evening went on. <laughs> yeah, the problem was it was not sustainable for that length of time. Um, you know, if you're going to have a long Oscar show, you know, might as well go for it. And, you know, and I think we'll also talk about the new controversy as we keep talking. Uh, but I thought we could just get into it, though, yeah, into the, the best rankings. pictures. Let's do the ranking here. Um, so, again, there are 10 nominees this year. And uh, starting at uh, number 10 is uh, Don't Look Up. You don't like this movie. Tell the people why you don't like it. I'm not, no, I'm not a big fan. I, now, I should preface this by saying I don't think the film is a complete failure. Um, now, uh, for those who don't know, Don't Look Up, it's the new Adam McKay movie with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. Um, I, well, it's a whole huge cast of people, of course. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, on the, it's a Netflix movie, and it's basically a, a, trying to be a... Um, sort of like a, a disaster, a, a disaster. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> hey, if that sounded awkward, you should see some scenes in this movie. <laughs> no, but it's you know, two astronomers discover that a comet is coming to Earth. There's really good likelihood it's going to wipe everything out. And when they go to the White House, you know, I they're kind of half like in not belief mode and the other half is just cynical. What can we do to try to make this for our benefit and not really, you know, give it the, the weight that it deserves. And it, you know, it, 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 it's a, it's a jumping off point basically for Adam McKay to really make a movie that is about a lot of different things, but primarily from what I saw in watching it is about how, um, you know, social media and the media in general are, you know, making us really stupid. And it, it's basically like, there's this, it's, there's this one um, essay in a book that I have to teach to my students. I don't really teach this essay, uh, but the, the, the title gives away, it's, is Google making us stupid? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that has a lot more depth, I think, than this movie does. But I think that is the level of the 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 weight that Adam McKay is giving this like I 
I, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what my issue is, except that um, as I was watching it, my thought was, you know, when you're trying to make this kind of Doctor Strange Love network esque type of satire, where you know the the a lot of the characters are depicted as being you know cynical and you know you have a couple of characters that are really trying to be the good people you know in the situation but they're not really being listened to i mean that's the case in both doctor strange love and uh network i think that's a little bit of the template the problem is in those films you really had a power structure or some type of thing that was being satirized that at least at the time was being taken seriously by the public. And I don't think most people really take the media or even social media seriously. A lot of the public is, isn't even on social media, like to the level that Adam McKay thinks. And it's, it's very, it's not that the targets are impossible to tackle, but they're soft targets. And it's also just extremely kind of sloppy in terms of how it's jumping from one part to the next and, you know, telling you basically that you should feel more angry. Why aren't you more angry? Get more angrier. And it, it, the thing is, it's I agree with a lot of the things the movie's saying. I just don't enjoy how a lot of it is executed, if that makes sense. And it's also very long. That too, yeah. It's an over two and a, it's like a two hour, 20 minute movie. I mean, I'm sure with credits, it, it's maybe not quite so long, but it feels the length. I mean, it's it's got a big, big cast of characters. Um, actually, probably the like one of the highlights of the movie for me, even though he was a bit divisive uh, for some, I think, critics, was uh, Mark Rylance plays like an Elon Musk type of character who's like out you know basically out to like capitalize on the, the the comet coming and like his only his company can really stop the the thing coming to earth um but it's but even with him like i i wish he was in a better movie i wish a number of these actors were given maybe i don't know better but also tighter material um and, you know, it's like Meryl Streep is playing, I think, a kind of weird combination of both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. <laughs> and I'm it. And I get it. You know, look, we know that politicians are fucking self-serving, you know, all about their buck type of people. But it it's just, you know, you, just because you want to say, like, well, we need to. Uh, speak truth to power or something it it could be done at least in a way that's funnier i think if the movie was funnier i would have been at least a little more forgiving but even there it isn't so much and that's also a disappointment since adam mckay uh did that so well in his past movies and i'm you know do i do i love all of his goofy comedies with Will Ferrell. I don't know. I'm <laughs> sure if I, if I'm sure if Anchorman or Talladega Nights popped up on TV, I would watch them. <laughs> you know, I don't know when I would watch this again. I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's funny. I was thinking about this just now. The thought popped in my head that, you know, one of the things that's a problem when you have movies that are just on streaming, like with Netflix, 
you know, you're going to watch them once, and then unless if you really love them, you know, why are you going to go back or, you know, check out just one scene? If this were on TV, you know, like on cable or something, maybe I could see myself wanting to rewatch uh, maybe one or two scenes. Um, like Leonardo DiCaprio at one point has like a gigantic Howard Beale-esque meltdown on a TV show. Look, let's establish once again that there is a huge comet headed towards Earth. And the reason we know that there is a comet is because we saw it. We saw it with our own eyes using a telescope. I mean, for God's sakes, we took a fucking picture of it. What other proof do we need? And if we can't all agree at the bare minimum that a giant comet the size of Mount Everest hurling its way towards planet Earth is not a fucking good thing. What the hell happened to us? I mean, my God, I'd, how do we even talk to each other? What have we, we, we done to ourselves? How do we fix it? We should have deflected this comment when we had the fucking chance, but we didn't do it. I, mean, I don't know why we didn't do it. And now they're, 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 they're actually firing scientists like me for speaking out, for opposing them. And I'm sure many of the people out there aren't even going to listen to what I did because they, you know, they have their own political ideology. But I, I assure you, I am not on one side or the other. I'm just telling you the fucking truth. I, I think this would be a good time to establish that, that Isherwell and the president have both said that okay. there's benefits to be right. had. Right, well, the president the of the United States is fucking lying. Look, I, I'm just like all of you. I hope to God, I hope to God that this president knows what she's doing. I hope she's got us all taken care of. But the truth is, I think this whole administration has completely bust their fucking mind and think we're all gonna die! That's kind of entertaining, and he's really in it for that. Um, you know, uh, Melanie Linsky's in it. She's good. You know, there are a lot of good people in it. Um, but it just doesn't quite cohere in the same way that, like, Big Short did. Um... Well, maybe it's better it's on streaming then because people who engage with it could engage with it as a phone scroll movie or a hat well, on in the background when doing chores movie. Well, that's, you know, that's the funny thing. Like, honestly, I mean, I was watching this and I, I try to be good about it. There, you know, I try sometimes to put away the phone and not have it in my hand when I'm at home, but sometimes I can't help it. You know, sometimes there's shit going on in the world that I feel like I got to pay attention to. And so, you know, the power of Twitter might compel me. And of course, here I have this movie where um, Adam McKay is almost like finger wagging at me. Like, you know, how dare you be on your Twitter instead of like doing something. And like, I'm like, Adam McKay, shut up. I'm going to be on Twitter anyway. Make a better movie so I don't have to be on my phone. I mean, ha were you... Were you totally set against watching this from the start? Or was there a point where you realized, like, I'm going to pass? It was a combination. At, yeah, anyone listening can probably tell by my relative silence. I did not watch this movie. For me, it was a combination of two factors. The 
the mediocre reviews, and the long run time. Those two things in combination really put me off the even with Even with the cast, which I'm sure, you know, most of the cast would be appealing. I can see them act in other things. Yeah. And that's another thing, too, now that I think of it. Well, going back even to Network and Doctor Strangelove, like, Network is... That's, a, that's a, like a two-hour movie. That, it earns its two hours. Doctor Strangelove is 90 minutes. A lot of people might not remember that. That's like a quick 90-minute movie. And, you know, it really earns it well. It Watching the... It's funny. I've seen, I keep seeing other people saying, like, this did Don't Look Up better. And I now want to go and re-watch these movies. Like, somebody I was... Maybe I watched a video essay or some quick little review on Letterboxd say this. And uh, the Simpsons movie came up as a suggestion of, like, this did Don't Look Up better. And now that I realize that, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, you're right. The way, like the public hysteria or really the public almost makes the problem worse through their, you know, shitheadedness. And I mean, the final thing I'll, I'll say, cause I want to move on to some other movies, but I, you know, I, I get, you know, Adam McKay meant well, I think with trying to have some kind of message about like, you know, people, we can do better when it comes to dealing with these giant issues. And, you know, climate change is another big one, which I didn't even mention yet because I, I feel like that gets a little muddled with the movie. Um, as a point of comparison, some people have said that COVID is a better comparison point, and I think maybe yes or no. But even still, what the movie's really about is just like making fun of you for not being on your phone and like, like no, that that's lazy go like for the real power structure and make that more focused than having like this, 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 this Timothy Chalamet's in the movie too. I didn't even mention that. And he, it, it's fun. One last thing is like, you know, it, it's ironic how Adam McKay has like this big social media message thing in the movie. And what I take away now is that Timothy Chalamet being like in a supermarket I fucking love fingerling potatoes. Became a meme. <laughs> <laughs> a dumb thing from his movie that's supposed to be about how we make dumb things. Like, eh. And, uh, yeah. So that's Don't Look Up. It has four nominations. And, you know, I almost would be fine with... you know, the, It got a couple nominations, like, Best Score. And um, Nicholas Bertel actually did the score for the movie. Mm-hmm. That, fine. You know, I mean, granted, I have a lot of goodwill for him because of Succession. And, uh, you know, that scores like that. But it got, like, best editing. And that, like, just why the editing in that movie is, like, you know, once again, like, with a couple, like, Amakay's been doing lately, kind of wannabe Oliver Stone. Only this time it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah and maybe we'll jump back into that later but all right move on to number nine a movie i've seen some of yeah the next one is uh and this may be a, a controversial ranking for some listening out there but uh the film coda you're the girl with the deaf family yeah 
and you sing. Interesting. Something's got a hold on me here. What are you doing next year? Working with my family. Let me tell you now, I've got a feeling I feel so Directed by, uh, written, directed by C.N. Setter. Uh, and this is, act, it's interesting, this is the first of a number of remakes that we have in our list. And uh, a lot of people probably didn't even know this was a remake. I didn't really know, because it's based on like a French film. And I don't even think the film got distribution in the U.S. But um, for those who maybe don't, aren't as familiar with this one, because I think this probably made a lot of people go, huh? What? You know, it's the, you know, when you're trying to talk about, um, you know, and say, it's like the line in, in Jaws. It's like, you know, you yell Barracuda, everyone goes, huh? What? You yell shark. We got a problem on the 4th of July. This is the Barracuda of the list. <laughs> and this was on, this. you can only really watch it on Apple TV. Um, it got actually on Apple TV because of a huge deal with, uh, at Sundance, it sold for like twenty five million or something like that, crazy amount. And it's the thing about this movie. It's it, what what it is. It's it's about a uh, a young woman played by Amelia Jones, and I am blanking on her character name right now. But she's in like a family of fisher fish people. Fish. <laughs> now that would have been a movie. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Oh wow! Like. She's in a family of like the character from Shape of Water, and all the fish people are deaf. <laughs> Her character's name is Ruby. That, oh yeah, all right. Thank you. Well, again, so like very, whatever character name. So yeah, Ruby. Her she has a father, mother, and brother. They all work uh, doing fishing for you know living, um, you know, in a kind of coastal town. Uh, and her family is deaf. She, you know, and you that the name of the movie is an acronym for Child of Deaf uh, Adults. Adults, exactly. And she is, um, you know, and, and basically it's just charting how she's in high school. She works with her family, but you know she's still trying to, you know, maybe go to college possibly, but. You know, her, she has a gift. Like, she can sing. You know, so she joins the choir, and the choir master's like, hey, you should maybe apply to this school. And, it, you know, it, it's funny that in my review, I, I said, you know, this may be based on a French film, but this is basically, like, the premise of the jazz singer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, take your pick which version. Uh, the one with Neil Diamond and Lawrence uh, Olivier popped in my head. Even before the one from the 20s. But it's basically, you know, I have this gift. I want to do this thing, family. No, you have to do this. Family obligation. No, you can't. I can't. I want to do this. No. And you know where this is going from minute one. It's one of those films. And it's, again, it like with uh, a number of the movies uh, on this list, you know, the, the heart's in the right place. You know, obviously, a movie that's meant to spotlight the deaf community. Like, I I get it, but it a it doesn't help that the movie just it it's not. I could tell it has some kind of little budget. Like Marley Maitland is in it, so like you know they could hire her. Um, I think actually the guy from Overboard, 
De- and I want to say is Yenio Deberez. Does that name sound right? I don't know. I've never seen Overboard. <laughs> He's the guy from Overboard. Well, the remake of Overboard. I want to say his name is right, and I could be screwed up. You're literally the one person from the remake <laughs> of Overboard. You're the one. Thank you, Movie Pass. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, um, but the but the film is just. I would be if I had seen this at you know a festival, you know, and I don't know Sundance, but like you know another kind of maybe lower level festival. I'd be like, oh, that was a pleasant little movie, you know. But I think it's clearly here in large part, and it sounds terrible to say, but it's it's here because of you know it's this is about quote unquote something it's about a family that has this disability and it sounds terrible for me to say that but uh the pro another problem for me is because it just i can't help but compare it to what we had last year with the sound of metal which was also a film about the deaf community um now granted that had a different entry point for the the main character because in that you had someone who was becoming deaf and having to, you know, reckon and grapple with that, you know, even, you know, down to what if he wanted to get his hearing back or his place in the community. We talked a little bit about that last year in our episode, if you want to go back and listen. But that ended up really making the experience of the character going through that really profound. And you could really feel it through how it was shot and how it was uh, performed and even down to the sound design and camera work. Whereas with this, it doesn't really take advantage of, you know, using the tools of cinema to elevate the story. It's just a, a kind of garden variety melodrama with some, you know, wacky little odd comedic bits thrown in. Like at one point they, the parents are fucking in the house. And because of course, you know, they can't hear anything. They don't really notice that the daughter and a friend are home and they that's how the friend meets the parents after they've screwed. You know, it, it's it's cute, but it's not like this this is not like a best picture nominee. You know what I mean? Can I give some takes of a movie that I did not watch all of? <laughs> yeah, we this should become like a running series on our podcast. We should have like, you know, you know, hot half takes or something like that. Yes. I don't know what we, we should come up with a name for that where you form <laughs> like these, you know, fully digested opinions of things that you didn't even fully watch. But you want you understand exactly what this movie and where it's going almost immediately. I yes. you watch this at home, because as we mentioned, it's on Apple TV Plus. I was weaving in and out of the room as you were watching it. I probably watched, what would you say, maybe about half an hour of this movie? You did sit in for a bit. You did. Like, I, I will, you know, there were times where you left and then were like, you know, I've, I've had enough. But you, I think you actually did watch more than just, like, a scene. Maybe I watched even, like, 40 minutes out of okay. it. Okay. Here's my take on the movie. It's well acted. Well, the main, like, the main family is well acted. The movie's well-intentioned, but I just didn't buy it. I just didn't buy it. And 
there were things about it that irritated me. Like, for instance, one of the main plot lines, this whole follow your dream versus familial duty aspect, is that the family has fallen on hard times. Yeah, I forgot to mention. I forgot to mention that. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff with like the fishing community too. So they're really struggling financially, and they need someone on the boat who can hear because um, the boat gets kind of like checked on by like a bureaucrat and an inspector, and they're too poor to hire someone outside the family to be a hearing crew member. But I guess one issue I kept coming up with when I was watching this movie is it seemed to me, given the age of the deaf parents, because these are not young people. Yeah, and These not, are people in their late... And not only that, too, like, there's a point where there's, like, a town hall meeting where the fishermen are, like, mad and yelling at, like, these, like... Div- I forget who they, exactly they are. They're bureaucrat business people who are making it a lot harder on the fisher on the fishermen. And the dad stands up and says, you know, my dad was a fisherman, his dad was a fisherman. And that just underlines the point of so you have generations of know-how with this. Yeah, as you were about to say, what were you doing before? Yeah, these are not young people. These are characters who and their first child is also deaf. So these are these are characters, the Marley Madeline character, and then, I don't know, the name of the actor and the father is like Troy something. Yeah, Troy Kutzer, who is also, uh, he's, the, he's the one from this that's nominated for Best Supporting Actor. These are individuals who had to make their way through the world as deaf people for decades before they had a hearing child. Yes. Also, there's a scene that I did see where the father says, fishing is all I know how to do. So the movie explicitly tells us this is it for him. This is the only career he's ever known. So somehow he was able to navigate this world well enough for decades. But now all of a sudden, so there's like, Almost, there are these contrivances in the script to me that almost feel like they come out of, like, an old sitcom or something. Well, well, that's the thing. Like, and other people have compared this, like, some people said this is like a PG-13 Disney Channel movie or TV mm. movie. And a part of me doesn't want to make that comparison right off the bat just because, frankly, there are, are TV movies that are better than this <laughs> nowadays. But, like... But you're right that it's the con- the conflict is contrived and it's clearly contrived and there's one scene that left me actually like very like Ugh, which you mentioned like briefly where the, yeah there there's this monitor person who is going who they, there's a scene where she goes on the ship with the dad and the brother uh, and she, Ruby's away like she's you know they cut back to her and she's having a day of, oh my God, she's having fun with her friend and like jumping into a lake and, you know, doing all that kind of ballyhoo. And she's on the boat for what seems like an hour at least, if not longer. And it's only then she, it dawns on her, wait, you two are deaf. Wait, I have to call the Coast Guard. I'm like, how did you not know this before you got on the boat? 
didn't you know who these people are? Like, you didn't make a call to see who... You know, the fact that these people have been fishing here for years, and only now you're going here as a monitor to do this, and like, uh, yeah, you're right. Like, yeah, I don't buy that. I would have... It, you, you know, it's funny, though. You just made me think of another thing with Sound of Metal that now I to compare it to, which is... You know, in that movie, it's not just the aesthetic, it's also you could really feel, like, the inner life of mm. the characters in the film. Like, they felt a lot richer. Whereas here, you don't really feel that. Like, there are a couple of moments where, the the again, the dad is probably the best actor in the movie. He, he feels the most genuine because he actually is deaf. And he's been, you know, he's acted in some things in TV and movies. But, you know, but I don't... If the movie may have been about him, it would have been maybe at least more interesting. But instead, it's about, like, this girl who, like, I, it's like her con the whole conflict of, like, can, uh, I might want to go to this conservatory and leave. I have to leave my family and then they can't have someone to translate and blah, blah, blah. Like... Fucking cry me a river. Well, I, I basically felt the broad strokes of this conflict, even though it's very familiar, I think the broad strokes are potentially interesting. Again, coming of age, finding out who you are, feeling obligated to your family versus charting your own course. Like, as broad themes, there's a lot you can do with this. It's yeah. just, I didn't like the specific scenarios that the script used mm -hmm. and it was bad because i felt the acting i felt sincerity from the actors i did I, me too yeah not from the script and also this is a minor point the like choir director was like a capital c like character oh yeah oh, and 100%. he drove me crazy yeah yeah no he he i mean Ultimately, he gets a couple of scenes later in the movie where he gets to be more genuine. Um, he definitely, I think more in the first half than the second is where... But even him, the problem is his character is contrived too because he, like, you know, he, he's also, like, too, like, kind of training Ruby to do, you know, to become more of, like, a proper singer and get ready for this, like, conservatorship audition or whatever. And it becomes like a thing where you have to be on time. You have to be on time. I'm not going to try to imitate him, but you know, then it's like, Oh my God. Like I, I'm sorry. I was doing a thing with my family. No, you have to take this seriously. I'm not going to train you if you don't do any more. She's working with her deaf family on a boat. Give her a break. Yeah. He was quirky in a way that movie characters are, but it, people aren't. Yeah. Oh, that's absolutely. Yeah. And that's, Again, and that's the thing, the difference with this and Sound of Metal. Like, you watch Sound of Metal, it feels like these people could really exist. Coda feels more like these are, again, characters in a movie. And that's also the frustrating thing where also the other, the nominees in uh, that this got, like, for Best Supporting Actor, fine. You know, that, that guy was good, was pretty good, even though I'm sure I could think of other actors who could have been in his place. And we'll probably talk about some of those performances later. It's but... a me, Mario. <laughs> <laughs> he 
Well, that or or Bradley Cooper and Licorice Pizza is a more realistic example. <laughs> or Ben Affleck in The Last Duel, which we'll get to later. But this got like a Best Adapted Screenplay nomination. And that just like... Screenplay's not good from what I watched. It's it, just not. It's not great. And again, I think that if I saw this at a festival one day, you know, fine, fine. But that this is now like... Well, I was going to say it's in the Hall rank of Best Picture nominees. It also, you know, joins the company of an extremely loud, incredibly close <laughs> and, you know, like crash. But, you know, it. I did like the scene, though, where the daughter is talking to the mom after one of their big blowouts. And she says to the mom, like, are you disappointed that I can hear? Do you wish I had been deaf? And the mom talked about how she was initially scared to have a hearing child because yeah. she thought that she wouldn't be able to connect to her. Mm -hmm. But I thought that scene was actually no, sweet and well-written. It was. And the thing is, again, she has another scene like that with her dad. It has these little pockets where you see, like, oh, this is a better movie. But it's but the plot is, like, junk. Yes. Like, that's the thing, is that you have... A lot of well-intentioned stuff in a plot that is just not that strong. And, you know, again, like, it, it's just very cookie-cutter. You know, and that it, and I'm not, you know, I know cookie-cutter sometimes comes with the territory at Oscar time. But it, I just wish it, it could have been better. That's why I don't hate the movie. The same, you know, I could even say the same with Don't Look Up. I don't even hate that movie either. But they're very disappointing. So basically... Number 10 and number 9 would be, like, gentle thumbs down on your list. Yeah, and now the next couple of films, I'd give kind of like a... Is the thumb, like... The, <laughs> the thumb is that Larry David gif, you know, where he's like... Eh, eh, eh. You've all seen it, you know, at the end of that one episode where he's caught between two sides. Um, yeah, and number... So numbers uh, 8 and 7 are um, King Richard and uh, Nightmare Alley. All right, so tell me your names again. I'm Venus. I'm Serena. So what'd you think? I wrote me a 78-page plan for their whole career before they was even born. Yeah, baby, yeah! <laughs> These girls so great, how come I've never heard them? They're from Compton. It's okay, they're just not used to seeing good-looking peoples like us. She's nervous. Take a step up. Maybe she ought to take a few more steps up. Just get someplace safe. I think you might just have the next Michael Jordan. Oh, no, brother man. I got me the next, too. King Richard, for those who don't know, it's a biopic about um, the early years of Venus and Serena Williams, uh, specifically her dad, who... Uh, I don't remember his name now off the top of my head. I mean, well, up. oh, well, Richard. <laughs> oh, God, we're so dumb. We're so dumb. You might say I'm a dick <laughs> about Richard. <laughs> we're so silly. What, what's the name of the character in King Richard? <laughs> Gee, I wonder, you know, can you tell me what's the name of the lead in uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty? <laughs> This goes up there with a few months ago at work. I actually uttered the phrase talking about Will Smith. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is set in California. 
<laughs> I actually said this at work a few months ago. Is our children learning? <laughs> anyway, so Richard Williams, he you know, he's he has like a bunch of kids, actually. Um him and his wife, they're raising a family in uh you know, uh, I think it's Compton, you know, part of LA. And he's, you know, got it in his head. Like my two daughters are going to become tennis, you know, masters. They're going to make it. And, you know, you're basically watching for like a couple hours or it's maybe it's a little over two hours. I forget the exact runtime. Basically that he's this, you know, very, you know, rugged, you know, very strict taskmaster in some ways. Um, but, you know, but he's also very loving and he wants his, you know, family to, you know, be, you know, very intelligent and, you know, how, you know, get the world by, you know, the, the whatever. And, you know, kind of in a similar way with Coda, it's, you know, kind of, in some ways it's cookie cutter, even though I appreciated where it ultimately ended up in the, in the ending. Um, you know, it's a it's a strange movie in a couple respects because it you think like he's going to be pushing his daughters for like almost the entire time, but then there comes a point where he like finally gets some deal with this other tennis instructor that's like a very big deal, and I think he, he's played by John Bernthal, and you know they're going to move and do all you know do all this to another state, but then he's like, no, no, my girls can't do this now; they have to go to school. They have to do this. And like, and he's like, what are you talking about? They're ready. Nope. Nope. Now they got to learn. And so that it, it was an interesting point where it's like, wait, so you are driving them to like exhaustion, but you're also being like, you got to learn, you got to be smart. You know, it's in that aspect, it's a little strange, but in other parts, it's exactly what you think it is. It's exactly like, you know, tough dad who's, ultimately going to be seen as very loving. When, when you watch the trailer, you mostly see what you're going to get, which is Will Smith giving, you know, this, you know, performance that, frankly, he's probably going to win the Oscar for. Because Sorry. that's where Will Smith is at in his career. And yet, even though my thought watching it was that, as even though he is good in the movie, I don't want to give the impression wrong, he is good. He has a, a couple of, he has some really good dramatic parts. There are also a couple of parts where he's clearly bringing on the waterworks and it's like, why don't you just cut to that? Like, have you ever seen that image of like Michael Jordan crying? Yes. <laughs> There's like one scene where he's having like a, like a very teary, you know, you gotta be strong. You can do this. I know dad, like to one of his daughters and they're both like crying and, talking and stuff i just i'm just if they this was on tiktok i'd expect that like they would cut like someone would cut to like the michael jordan crying picture um but uh yeah i mean again it's a fine movie it's fine but my other but my thought watching it was well all right will smith's in this he's good but what if you had someone who actually was maybe going to challenge the audience a little more as far as how we are, you know, taking in this character, you know, if it, you know, someone with a little bit more, just, you know, maybe, I don't know if grit is the word, like, you know, like I, my two, the two people that popped my head weirdly were Idris Elba and Terrence Howard, and of course they don't look anything alike, but 
both of them, for some reason, strike me as having, like, a little bit more oomph than, like, Will Smith does. Well, that's actually why, in a totally unrelated genre, when I saw Suicide Squad in 2016, the movie's, that movie's awful, but one of my issues was Will Smith is totally edgeless. Yeah. He cannot communicate menace or danger or edge. He's just, you know, lovable, huggable Will Smith. Yeah, yeah. And even, again, he can, he has dramatic acting chops. I don't want to make it sound like he doesn't. But there are, but, you know, actors sometimes just have certain abilities to dig deep and to project something. But then in The Suicide Squad, now technically they're playing two different characters, so it's not a recast. However, the Idris Elba character basically has the same biography and the same power set as the Will Smith character. He does. And I didn't mean to... It's funny that I put the two of them in my head together when Idris Elba did play a Will Smith character in a film in 2021. But that's probably why you thought of it. And one of the reasons why it was such a big improvement is that Idris Elba actually can um, convey that kind of little bit of edge or gravitas that you're looking for. Because I think, basically, you wanted to be challenged and maybe as an audience member, you wanted your your sympathy to kind of waver towards the yeah, father. Yeah, and, and some genuine heart, too. Like, it's I know we talked about the Suicide Squad, you know, in last summer. Um, but, you know, that ending scene where... Idris Elba, you know, uh, his Bloodsport character is very, very tentatively get, you know, starting to pet the rat. I, I felt a little emotional in that. I felt more emotion from Idris Elba finally connecting with that rat than I did with anything in King Richard. <laughs> oh, James Gunn. But yeah, so, I, I mean, you had no interest in watching it, though. Generic sports biopics are incredibly not my jam. Yeah, and the, you know what the funny thing is, though, too? I think that had it been a lesser star than Will Smith in the lead, though, I also don't think it would have gotten the, the Oscar nominations either. Um, it also got, uh, well, best original screenplay, because it's not based on a book or anything. Um, but it only ha- it has, in total... Uh, well, four nominations. I uh, from no, no five. Try to remember what the other one is because it's picture Will Smith, the supporting actress who I feel so bad her whose name escapes me. She like plays his wife, and she's actually very good in the movie too. Um, the screenplay, and then there was something else. Well, I also said to you, they kind of had to throw nominations at this movie, and if Will Smith's gonna win. They kind of have to give him the Oscar this time because I like Will Smith. You like Will Smith. We all like Will Smith. But we've got to be honest. He does mostly bad movies, and that's how it's been for a decade. Yeah, it's kind of a... Like, when I was thinking about it, like, I was trying to... Thinking... Well, yeah. I mean, even a movie that I was kind of like, eh, this is okay. Like, I saw... I think the last one I saw before this was Gemini Man. And then what else do we have? Like we have, uh, you know, Aladdin and Suicide Squad. 
collateral beauty. Oh my god, yeah. Yeah, his career is not... The old Mary ain't what it used to be with him. Yeah, so he's really coasting on the fumes of when he was gigantic in the 90s and 2000s. So I feel like the Academy's probably thinking, quick, we've got to toss him this Oscar now because he's going to be uh, nothing but trash for the next decade well, after this. And it all, But it helps that he is good in the movie. Now, he's not... Again, he's not even my favorite of the nominees uh, in the category. And we didn't we didn't really necessarily talk too much about that. Like, I think the other nominees in this list, we have Benedict Cumberbatch for uh, Power, Power of the, the Dog, Dog, which we're going to get to in a bit. Um, Andrew Garfield, Tick, Tick, Boom. Javier Bardem being the Ricardos. Denzel Washington, uh, the tragedy Macbeth. And what what was the last one? Will Smith. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I forgot his, What's his name. His name in the- <laughs> What's my name? Will Smith. Will Smith. Uh- <laughs> God, someone check out my brain. I think it's Swiss cheese. Um, but yeah, so among those nominees, I mean, would I rank him the top? No. Would I rank him at the bottom? Probably not. But, you know, he's, I think they'll give it to him because, again, he's not, he's also not bad in the movie. So that maybe they'll look and say like, well, <sighs> we can give it to him for a good performance, you know, even though, you know, his, he's had better performances still as well. So that's my review of King Richard. Like, again, if you were looking for something like this, it's, you, you could find worse, you know, it, it it's very sincere, like with Coda, it's very sincere. I like the actresses who play, uh, Serena and Venus Williams are, are pretty good. Um, John Bernthal, you know, he's always fantastic. Uh, but it's just, you know, you you know, you, you go to get like the, the Boston cream donut in the morning. You're going to get the Boston cream donut. You've seen the trailer. You've seen the movie. Yeah. Um, let's move on to the next movie. Okay. So here's where we'll have probably a little bit of disagreement between us. So. Nightmare Alley. How do you ever get a guy to geek? Oh, I ain't gonna crap you up. It ain't easy. You gotta pick up a broken drunk, a real alky, a two-bottle-a-day fool, see? Pick him up from where? Nightmare Alley's train tracks, flap houses, you name it. A lot of folks came back from the war, addicted to the poppy, to booze. Now, opium. Really sinks its claws, but you reel them in with booze. You tell them, I got a little job for you. It's a temporary job. Make sure you emphasize that. Just temporary until we get ourselves another gig. You spike it with that opium tincture. One drop per bottle. That's all. But oh. Oh, now, this is what he thinks is happening. So, you say to him like this, you say to him, well, I gotta get me a real geek. He says, ain't I doing okay? You say, like crap, you're doing okay. You can't draw a real crowd faking a geek, you're through. And you walk off. Now that night, you drag out the lecture, you laid on thick. All the while you're talking, he's thinking about sobering up, 
getting the crawling shakes, the screaming, the terrors. You give them time to think that over while you're talking. Then you throw in the chicken. You geek. Um, yeah, Guillermo del Toro's remake of the, uh, the classic film noir um, from 47. As Michael Hughes, your dad, is fond of saying, every boy has a dog. <laughs> Which is uh, the quotable line from the original one. Um, so those who don't know, like Nightmare Alley, it's a period film, you know, 1940s. Bradley Cooper is this like guy who kind of stumbles in or wanders into working with uh, this you know, traveling carnival show. Um, he learns some of the tricks of the trade to be, be basically like a super, um, well, I, I guess you'd call him like a medium or something, but he's kind of basically like a con man and, you know, predicting, you know, like this person is going to do, you, you, this person's coming back into your life and this person's been dead, but they're visiting you. And is, is that what you call him? Like a medium? Like a saint? Like one of those types of things? I forget what exactly his title would be, but that's who Bradley Cooper's playing. Um, and it's a very long movie. Uh, it's a very dark movie. Um, you know, it's very much like a big, it's Guillermo del Toro, you know, with his, you know, it's his follow-up to The Shape of Water. So it's him with a budget where he can basically do whatever he wants and cast whoever he wants. Well, up to a point. He originally wanted, he originally wanted Leonardo DiCaprio in the lead and he turned it down. Um, and I, the, the thing about this movie for me Part of what didn't help was I just watched the original film before I saw this. And the original is great. The original is awesome. It's like Tyrone Power in his best performance. And it's, you know, eerie black and white noir that's very, you know, sinister. But it's also very entertaining. Um, and, and yet this movie, it's just like, it's full of so much stuff. But... Is it? <laughs> well, it does have a lot of scenes. <laughs> yeah. It's... Well, it, it, but the problem is, it's like, where's like, I don't necessarily need a heart for this movie, but it needs some type of more of a soul. And I ended up, I, I originally also didn't like this movie originally. Like, I probably might have put this lower. The more I thought about the film, I ended up liking the ending. A little bit more now. I know you also have thoughts about that too, but why don't you why don't you tell the listeners about what you went through with Nightmare Alley? I hated this movie. Hated it. <laughs> hated it. Hated it. Hated it. I hate this movie. It's terrible. <laughs> why don't you tell us your other thoughts, Roger Ebert? <laughs> <laughs> this movie. <laughs> how, how this movie rape your childhood? This movie's awful. There is only. One movie I saw the entire year last year that's unambiguously worse than this. Mm. I absolutely hate this movie. And now I am devastated because I am a big Guillermo del Toro fan. Every other movie of his I've seen, I really like. I haven't seen all his other movies, but every other movie of his I've seen, I really like. I think he is a visionary, shape of water, 
on my top 10 list. Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth. Fantastic. Even something like Crimson Peak. Love it. Hellboys. Love it. Um, Yeah, so what do you think it is that that didn't work for you? Because I could tell you there is a lot, there's a good part of the movie that is just, becomes just really weighed down, I think, by a certain kind of importance. I feel like he's giving the material. It's lugubrious in the yeah. extreme. But no, here's my problem with the yeah, movie. Yeah, it is. I think I gave... Didn't I use that word initially? Here's yeah, the problem. Yeah, lugubrious. This movie is utterly dramatically inert. The lead character is a hole on the screen. I normally... I'm totally fine with Bradley Cooper. I think he's a good actor. Excuse me. Killed it in Licorice Pizza. He is terrible in this film. He neither... There are two, like, very different dimensions of the character he has to sell. You have to buy that he's he's charismatic enough to actually con people. But you also have to buy, at various points in the movie, that he can put up a wholesome front. Or you have to buy, towards the end of the movie that he's full of this, like, desperate pain and anguish. He doesn't sell it at all. The character is a total zero. Yeah, he's... I wish there there's something missing in his performance, and I'm not sure exactly what. I, I felt like... I know you didn't agree that, like... I thought he finally kind of pulled it together a little in, like, the final scene. Um, it's still not, like, a great scene, but it made me realize, okay, like, you were at least building to something, and I, I like that it's ending here, um, even though, I mean, the original movie ends differently, but because of the sen- the Hayes Code at the time, um, but I still like the ending too, but I think it's also just because he's, the, the supporting cast around him too, like, it's like some of them are trying and some of them aren't. You know what I mean? Like They're all totally one note. And Rooney Mara, what's her personality in this movie? What's her drive? What motivates her to do anything? Why is she with him? Why does she leave him? Basically, I felt like this was an elaborate set design, but every character <laughs> was just a paper doll. Well, I think you said after you saw the movie, production design isn't a movie. Did I mention the movie's two and a half hours long? Oh, it's way too long. I, that's the crushing length of it, too. The, again, the original movie was, like, maybe an hour 45, an hour 50, um, which is not, like, too short, but it's it, it feels like it earned its length in that case. In this, it is just, it's way, it's overstuffed. It's, like, way too much stuff. And, again, the movie. And, and yet... You know, I think it's a shame because you have a lot of people are trying. Like, I kind of like Richard Jenkins in the movie, what he's doing. Um, I even for his couple of scenes, even though he didn't have that much of a character to play, it looked like Willem Dafoe was having fun. He was certainly giving it the old college try. He was. Um, other, but there are other people like Ron Perlman. Just feels kind of wasted. He's just like there as a character who, you know, just. What? Why is he there? Um, and Cape Blanchett, that's like one of the more disappointing parts of the movie because you feel like this character should really be like 
such a getting your claws into someone femme fatale because like the whole idea in the movie you know in both movies is her character like she she only pop, she pops up in the second half because she's like this therapist who you know kind of basically sees through Bradley Cooper's bullshit and you know basically sets him up like through you know and basically kind of seduces him in a way like through like her own kind of blonde femme fatale wiles but it's just something about her i didn't buy in it like she was playing more like she was in a movie kind of like what we were saying you know almost the opposite of like what i was saying about coda where well actually no actually it is closer to coda where it's like this is a movie character she's vibrating on a different frequency than everyone else in the movie but basically this movie is excruciatingly dull because None of the characters have any kind of, like, dynamism with each other. There's no chemistry. You have no idea why anyone in the movie acts the way they do. Like, why do they form the relationships that they form? Why do they do the... Yeah. This movie's just... There's a giant sucking sound emanating out of the screen whenever it's on. In fact, when we saw this in the theater, I hated it so much. I did something I almost never do. I, obviously, we went to see this opening weekend, and you might remember this opened opposite a little movie called Spider-Man. <laughs> um, and, you know, you won't believe how much Nightmare Alley blew Spider-Man out of the water. <laughs> it was no contest. But, so when we were in the theater seeing this opening weekend, the theater was almost empty. So I felt comfortable doing something I almost never do, which is I checked my phone to see the time. You know, I had my phone in my purse, and then I realized... There was still 40 minutes left of this absolutely godforsaken film. Yeah. And then I whispered to you, I can't take this anymore. I left. I walked out. And I want. I was like, I'm just going to go rewatch some of Spider-Man, which I'd seen the day before. And obviously all of the Spider-Man screenings were sold out. So I just stood in the hallway like a creeper re-watching Spider-Man because I couldn't stand the crushing... No. On we inflicted on my soul by this horrible film. Yes. So you're also like, you also technically didn't watch the whole movie like the other. Well, ones. <laughs> after you talked up the last scene of the movie to me, when it went on to streaming, I put up Nightmare Alley on streaming. Guess what? The end of the movie sucks too. Mm. Sucks. Well, it, it it was better with. Well, you only wa- did you watch just the final scene, or did you watch the other scenes you missed? I miss some of it. There's some there's some of this movie I've never watched and never will watch because it's terrible. Uh, I think see the thing is I think you're kind of a little bit in <laughs> overhating mode on this one. Like I again, I'm a little bit more I feel like we're a little bit more like how we were back in our Call Me By Your Name review where <laughs> you just want to like burn it with fire and I'm like some of it's okay, some of it's not. You know, I, I, it is my least favorite uh, Guillermo del Toro movie, and I've seen all the films he's directed by now, and it's it's a shame because I think he had something interesting to work with. You know, there's this. You know, it's not unlike a lot of his other movies. There's no real supernatural element or anything fantastical. Even it's just a It's more of a psychological kind of horror thriller 
but more about like this guy's sort of tortured past. I think in another review I listened to, um, I think it might have been like it's called Untitled Movie Reviews. Uh, it's from Canada. These guys, one of them made the comparison to Shutter Island, and I think <laughs> Shutter Island is kind of like you know, even though it's a different setting, the way that it deals with the character's backstory and how that sort of comes into the foray, that I think was dealt with more interesting, which might be why maybe DiCaprio, you know, was going to do the movie and then pass because he maybe thought, well, I've done this already. It would have been better with DiCaprio. I think it would have been. I think he, I think he would have brought something to it more than Bradley Cooper, who looks like he's kind of like, at times, like, I'm making an acting face. I'm acting. But it's not quite enough. And I, yeah, I, I, he's not great in the movie. Like, even as much as I kind of say, like, the final scene was pretty good, even there, I feel like he's still trying a little too hard. Um, yeah, I found him lifeless. And it's, trust me, it's not the biggest problem with the movie. But another thing that kind of irritated me is characters are constantly calling him kid bradley <laughs> cooper is very obviously in his 40s bradley cooper is middle-aged yeah and, yeah and he's not really that far in age from some of the other characters like david strathern or willem dafoe i mean there may be a good like 15 20 years older than him but not like to the point yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah bradley cooper's like middle-aged for sure yeah that's not it's a very weird choice like if he had been you know maybe if he had been a younger actor i don't know what maybe would have done better but i think that it's also a problem where guillermo del toro i was a little bit harsher again when i first saw the movie i've lightened up a tiny bit like before it would have been maybe a two and a half out of five star maybe i now would go to three not an enthusiastic three but it well, after I first saw it, my thought was, oh, yeah, this movie's definitely going to bomb because this is like a director who, it's almost like with Heaven's Gate or something, where they've come off the Oscar win and now they get to make whatever they wanted. And now, and it's just like, oof, this is a little bit like you're, you're so in love with the production detail that you, you're doing that you've kind of lost touch with the heart and the, of the thing. Yeah, so this movie's awful. It shouldn't be within fifty feet of an Oscar list. Uh, well, that's and that the thing is, I think if this had been another year, like we've had before, where we got maybe eight nominees or something like that, I don't think that this would have been one of the ones that was cut. I think because we're at ten, and now I think from now on we're at ten nominees. You're gonna see movies like Nightmare Alley or Coda included in the list when you know why is this here yeah some real junk um <laughs> i wouldn't nightmare alley's junk absolute junk um it's an embarrassment what so there's no chance of you watching the uh vision in light and darkness cut that's in black and white get out of here <laughs> get out of here you know what you do you get steven soderbergh to do his re-edit of the movie which yes. you know he he did that with Heaven's Gate, and he cut like an hour out of that movie. Well, it would be shorter, so it would inevitably be better. But let's go to another movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the next movie um, is actually the front runner in terms of nominees, and that is 
uh, the power of the dog. What she said about her boy tonight, Phil, made her cry. She had an ear to the door. She was crying, Phil. The hell. I said her boy needed to snap out of it and get human. Pointed it out, that's all. She should damn well know. Speaking to Mrs. Gordon. Oh, yes. She cried on your shoulder. So she did. We'll give her half a chance and she'll be after some dollar for Miss Nancy's college fee. I've heard that you're brilliant. You're gonna want to keep your distance and just off the horse. Anyhow, so you don't want conversation. You've been listening to the Panano and dancing, I guess. You dance? You didn't play? Sure did practice a terrible lot. See, you wouldn't think there's much difference between a cinema pit and a dinner party. Where have you been, Phil? I could hardly eat worrying about you. I didn't get washed up, so I didn't come. Just run, grab your blanket for the ride. Uh, directed by uh, Jane Campion, um, and starring Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, um, uh, oh, and Cody Smith McPhee. Uh, all four of those, they act, actually, I believe this film has the most also acting nominations for a single film. All four of those are in the few categories. Oh, and it's so cute. Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons both got nominated and they're married in real life. Yeah. Isn't that's, that adorable? That's very sweet. Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to think if there were any other couples that got that kind of nomination oh well they weren't in the same movie together but penelope cruz and javier bardem both got nominated yes good point also adorable like you love that kind of stuff i love that so it's so cute like husband and wife oscar nominees adorable. yeah adorbs yeah. oh yeah and i love yeah and i loved uh uh i think kirsten dunce told the story about when she found out and jesse plemons wasn't in the house and she had you know Freaked out and had to go tell him later. So yeah. sweet. Anyway, this movie, not quite so cute. <laughs> um, the Power of the Dog, also another Netflix movie. Um, although it's played in actually in some theaters uh, here and there if, if you want to go see it theatrically. Um, it's a, sort of a, I guess you could call it a Western drama uh, kind of thing. Uh, set in the early 20th century in, I believe, Montana. Where uh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Plemons are sort of working, I guess, as kind of cowhands, and they, I forget exactly how it happens, but they come to uh, uh, 
uh, Kirsten Dunst, uh, her her house to to work, I guess, or to do some some type of project, and like the way that Benedict Cumberbatch's character kind of enters their lives, or spent well more so her life because uh, Jesse Plemons already kn- has known him for a while. You know, she's he's very kind of just very not liking her very much, especially because Jesse Plemons' character is getting closer to her. Um, she also has some issues with drinking. Um, it kind of worsens the more that Benedict Cumberbatch is around. And Chloe Smith McPhee plays her son, who um, may have some issues of his own. Um, the thing, th- this is a good movie. I want to put up that up front right off the bat. This is a good movie, again, by evidence of how, you know, where it is in the ranking. I, I, I hesitate to call it a great one, at least, you know, for now, because it's, it, it, the, the thing that's frustrating for me about it is there are a lot of things that I really like about it and I really responded to. Like, Benedict Cumberbatch's performance is very good. Like he's actually, I think him and Will Smith are probably the the real front runners in the best acting category, and for good reason because he's very much he's playing basically a character who um, the movie no the movie doesn't make any bones about it. he's kind of a, a closet a closeted character. Mm-hmm. Like he's very much trying to beef up his own image for himself and around other people, um, as if he's this macho guy. You know, I'm going to do all this. You know, remember that guy we had uh, in our past? Uh, you know, he would talk with Jimmy, Jesse Plemons. And, you know, we're, we're going to honor him and do this. And he's, you know, kind of drinking and smoking a lot and all this stuff. And his character also in the film, he, he kind of forms eventually kind of a bond with the son. And, you know, he's also probably gay. And it's very much, you know, a film about... Um, you know, men dealing with these extremely closeted issues of identity and masculinity. And that's, that's all perfectly fine. I think my issue with it is like, it, the, this, I feel like there's a dynamic between Cumberbatch and Dunst in the movie that I wish was explored a little more. It feels like they're sort of in... They're, they're sort of antagonistic sort of relationship in it. Mm-hmm. Feels like early on, like it's going to be a bigger part of the movie. And then halfway through, it's kind of dropped. And I felt a little bad in a way for Dunst, even though she got an Oscar nomination. And she's and she's good with what she does in it, but her character eventually, I wanted a little bit more maybe from her character in the scope of it. Um, I mean, a lot of it's beautifully shot. Um but there's just something else that's missing from it for me. And again, I don't know if maybe a second viewing would make it better. Um, this probably is the one streaming title that I probably would be most inclined to watch again. Uh, that's not one of the top three that we'll eventually get to. Um, you know, it's very dusty. It's very, you know, morose in some ways. Uh, you know, it's a well-made movie, but there's something about it that just isn't quite getting to that great level. Like, it's just, something is missing from it, and I'm still having trouble articulating fully why. I listened to another critic on a podcast that made a kind of, that said a similar thing. He said, I like the movie, it's good, but I don't think it's great. He said, 
it was a little like too slow and too restrained for him and it needed like a bigger emotional catharsis it, yeah it is yeah it but where it ends up it's an interesting point uh for when, when you find out about what happens like because it jumps ahead in some time and uh you find out something really tragic uh about a character um but yeah i think the restraint part is what gets it it's also too very clearly you know and i don't i don't begrudge her because you know it's a fucking masterpiece it's clear jane campion watched there'll be blood like a dozen times before making this movie and Maybe to an extent, uh, I don't know, maybe Benedict Cumberbatch watched Daniel Plainview in that. Now, the character is not Plainview. He might be trying to be a Daniel Plainview type character, but he's obviously very different. And I think it's... Apparently, I read that this was based on a book, uh, and the book actually really goes more into the characters and some of their backstories. And I understand that in a film, you can't get to all of that necessarily. Um, but there could have still been a little, a touch more, maybe humor. Like even in there'll be blood, like that film as dark as that can get. And as brooding as that can be, there's a lot of parts in there'll be blood where you find yourself laughing. And I don't really find myself doing that in power of the dog. It takes itself super super seriously and there are a lot of good little there are a lot of great little moments in the film like Gene Campion clearly you know knows how to work with actors and knows how to get some deep moments from them but there's just yeah the, the restraint and kind of slow pace I think it, it's it's not easy to get into and maybe watching at home doesn't help either it's ironic that this could possibly be the first Netflix Best Picture winner. And it's a film that really should be seen on a big screen. <laughs> and most people will never see it on a big screen. Because <laughs> that's how Netflix rolls. You know, maybe some people get that gigantic 80-inch screen or, and, and recreate the experience. But, um, but yeah, it's... I mean, obviously, another movie I could probably bring up comparing it to is Brokeback Mountain. You know, also, you know, very restrained, you know, very artistically dense kind of movie. Very much like we're going to show the Western landscape, which is as barren as, you know, a man a man's face, even though it's not like his heart. I was going to say barren <laughs> as his soul. No, I'm not going to say soul because... Clearly, there's a lot there in his soul. It's just he can't express it, you know, because, you know, I don't want to see, you know, the other cowhands can't see that I'm, you know, really a, a sensitive intellectual who's, you know, this is the Bennett Cumberbatch character, you know, I'm, I'm educated at Yale, and yet I'm putting on this facade of uh, a cowboy. It, I feel like it's something that is good, ultimately, in, in the depiction of it, but I feel like other films have maybe done a little better, too. Again, Brokeback Mountain comes to mind. And Johnny Greenwood, uh, by the way, he uh, did the score for the movie. That's also what brings up the There Will Be Blood comparison. Um, another film that you didn't watch, right? Yeah, so I I have no big reason. I'm just never in the mood to watch this movie. That's what it came down to. I'm just never in the mood to sit down and be like, 
All right, time for Power of the Dog. Maybe when it wins Best Picture, I'll suck it up and watch it. Um, now the the other, but this goes back to the point I was making. If this had been playing or more around here theatrically, like if we if you could have seen it at an AMC theater, would you have seen it? Yeah, maybe I would have. I don't know. I'm on. But I do feel like the decision to see something in a theater is not the same as the decision to just put it on when you're at home. Yeah, well, and also then maybe too, you're giving yourself that you're giving yourself that mental space to say, okay, I'm now going somewhere to see this movie, as opposed to, well, I could watch Power of the Dog or I could watch this crazy Korean soap opera. Well, I, was gonna say, I think it comes down to a streaming movie is competing against all the TV shows I want to watch, whereas a theatrically a movie playing theatrically is only competing against movies I want to see in the theater. Because I almost look at them as kind of two separate spheres of my life. I got my TV watching life, which I do at home. And I got my movie life, which yeah. is in the theater. And you're right, like, when I'm at home, in the battle of K-drama versus Power of the Dog, K-drama's gonna <laughs> win every time, baby. Yeah, how, how, what, what uh, chance does uh, the Power of the Dog stand against, uh, you know, like, the, the fucking sad violin player in the snow? <laughs> <laughs> Over flowers. Yeah, that, or, that's that's a deep cut in joke reference. Or the between adorable us. dimples of hometown cha cha cha. Yeah, well, again, I want to just pull in Marshall McLuhan into the room here so he could say, you know, medium is the message by Marshall. Yeah, so I got a lot of TV shows to watch at any given time. And yeah. all right. So yeah. But that's you know, so again, power of the dog. If you haven't seen it, I do recommend it. I just it's just not my favorite of the nominees, and, uh, you know, I, we'll talk about certain Oscar chances maybe later, but I, I, that, that it wins picture, and if it won picture and director, okay, I guess, <laughs> you know, it's not my favorite, but it's what it is. All right, let's get into the, you're, we're now in the top half, we're at number five. Number five, and we're going to get into Ireland now. <laughs> We all have a story to tell, but what makes each one different is not how the story ends, but rather the place where it begins. You think like me and that girl have a future? Well, why the heck not? You know she's a Catholic. And you call me her? Yes! You know who you are. Your buddy from Belfast, where everybody knows you. So the whole family looks out for you. Be good, son. If you can't be good, be, be careful. careful. And that thought will keep you safe. Buddy! We're looking to cleanse the community. You wouldn't want to be the old man out in the street. You touch my family and I'll kill you. <laughs> We're going to go into the Rishi Isle of uh, Belfast. <laughs> I'm so happy that I feel like... I've been either silent or, like, a snarky buzzkill, but we're finally at a movie. I love this movie. It's awesome. Belfast I forever. I like it quite a bit, yeah. And, um, just as a, a quick recap for uh, people who aren't sure or saw the trailer and were like, pass. 
Um, Belfast is, uh, you know, it's a very sweet, uh, but also sometimes bittersweet, uh, kind of, you know, childhood story. I maybe I don't know if I, coming of age is necessarily the right phrase. Maybe it's coming of age for like a whole family, if that makes sense. Uh, where, you know, it's been, you know, one of these films where, you know, a filmmaker looks at a specific part of their life and dramatizes it. In this case, Kenneth Branagh, you know, when he, he grew up originally in Ireland, in Belfast, and his family, of course, being in Belfast, which was a very tumultuous time, as it is in a lot of times in history in Ireland, uh, you know, the, the quote-unquote troubles, uh, and there's also not just political troubles, there's also the family money troubles, and you're just kind of seeing as life goes with this, uh, this young boy and his parents and their, and the boy's grandparents, and, you know, in some ways it's very episodic, uh, in some ways, uh, movie, other movies, uh, kind of in, influence, uh, certain parts of it, in particular, uh, High Noon, <laughs> at one very, uh, charming point. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's a very sweet story. And I, I think what makes it, uh, very heartrending is that the, you know, that Brana, you know, really depicts life between these characters as, you know, that even though there's some sentiment, there's still, you know, a lot of heart between them. And I, I don't know, I, I feel like you probably have a lot more to say about this than you and I do. Oh. What I liked about it is the kind of hook of the movie, or what's kind of distinctive about it, is you're seeing the beginning of a very traumatic historical period through the innocent eyes of a child. It reminded me a little bit of that movie Room in that respect, hmm. because Room, for those of you who haven't seen, also presents an even more horrifying situation through the kind of unknowing eyes of a child. So we are firmly in like Buddy's frame of reference throughout the entire movie. That's that's the, the kid's name. Buddy. Yes. And I must say, it is a big risk, like resting an entire movie on the shoulders of a child actor. But this child actor is incredible. Jude Hill. Yeah. He's yeah. He's so good. Yeah. He's very engaging and he's very not like, he makes it look very natural, and I'm, I'm I don't think he's done a movie before, or if he has, it must have not been a part this prominent. But Brana gets like such a winning performance, and especially how he interacts with, you know, you know, uh, Jamie Dornan and uh, let me say the the actress's name. It's actually I think is it just, Katrina? Yeah, it's spelled really weird, but I think it's just Katrina. Yeah, she uh, and the mother. The grandparents, uh, who were, uh, by the way, nominated for Oscars, Siren Hines and uh, uh, Judy Dench, you know, they're all just, uh, they 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 all manage to be like these, they try to do their best for the, the son, but they also, it's hard for them to hide the fact that, you know, things are just, yeah, it's very, it's very hard right now, and we may have to move, but what, how are we going to move everything we know is here? You know, our whole family life is here. Our friends are here. Everything we've known, you know, it, what 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 does that mean if we're moving to, you know, this other place? You know, even though, or or even there's even discussion in the film. Maybe we don't even move. What if we move all the way to like Australia or this other country? 
and it make it there's this kind of even though the, it deals with a lot of heavy themes, the movie never feels heavy. Yeah, and they do a really good job dramatizing, like, both sides of the divide, like, to leave or to stay. They do such a good job showing you both why the family would want to stay and kind of get through the troubles and why they would also want to leave. I think this movie is a masterclass of kind of economical storytelling because... Take note, filmmakers of America, this is a really good family drama with very well-developed characters, very rich, nuanced relationships, and it's like 97 minutes long. Yeah, it's... So many other filmmakers could learn from this. Yeah, it's surprisingly brisk. I mean, part of the the trade-off, if I have like a, not critique, but an observation in the film, it's very... I think the reason why it's not so much longer is because it's by design fairly episodic even though it it has the spine of Mm -hmm. that sort of central question you know do we stay or do we go but the way that the story kind of unfolds it's in little like vignettes i mean it's very much in that sense like a more of how you picture a lot of typical coming-of-age stories like for example you know the kid gets into trouble at one point uh like um does it's like him and his cousin like steal candy yes or something like that you know that that little things like that happen um you know uh again stuff with the you know try you know little moments with the grandparents um it but it is very yeah what's what's nice about it is again it's all from the kid's point of view and yet you're not hidden from seeing like the things between the parents. You get a clear idea about mm-hmm. what's at stake with them, what's at stake with you know Jamie Dornan especially. That uh, he also has issues with other people in town who want him to become more part of the troubles, and he doesn't want to do that. Um, my other little criticism of the film, which is why it's not higher in my Oscar ranking, or why. Uh, it's not like on my best of the year list exactly, even though I like the film, like some of this, when, when he has the scenes that kind of bookend the film that show the big explosive trouble parts, mm-hmm. for some reason that was, those were the only parts of the film that weren't as effective to me. Like, even though it's, it, it's still, you know, like, Oh wow, this is happening now. Like the, these, you know, explosive, you know, in the streets fighting and, mm-hmm. you know, destruction, it felt a little bit, different in tone or something it's hard to describe than the rest of the film i get what you're saying i didn't feel that way but i understand what you're saying but the opening scene shows you very quickly how deeply interconnected the families are yeah in this town Mm -hmm. because it's kind of like a row house situation where the neighbors are really on top of each other you can see the social bonds in this community are so deep when the movie starts, which A, does a good job advertising why someone would want to stay even as mm-hmm. the street is collapsing into a war zone, and B, just further kind of emphasizes the real tragedy of the troubles that you know these social bonds are going to break down. And I also think this movie does a really good job of balancing tones, because you're right, it does have a kind of episodic structure, and... I'm really impressed with a movie that can make, like, some really heavy material and 
a boy and his first crush or yeah yeah that's a boy steals a candy bar or a boy boy has this like time at the movies watching chitty chitty bang bang yeah and i really like that it was shot in black and white too and the movie looks gorgeous i like another thing that like kenneth Branagh does is he shoots certain scenes like really from a distance I think maybe to emphasize the alienation the yeah. kid feels from this, like, scary mm-hmm. adult stuff. I loved this movie. This is the kind of movie that, like, everyone I follow on Twitter just snarks on. <laughs> yeah, no, I... I, again, I loved it. Yeah, I feel like I liked it more than, a lot, than other critics or people I follow, too. Like, this is the movie that among the kind of, sort of, we're going to kind of give you a feel-good sort of experience, like... You know, you have, or again, we talked about Coda and King Richard. Like, this feels a little more substantial to me. And I also, f- you know, Jamie Dornan, like, quite a year for him. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're, you know, between this and uh, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, he's, fi- he's finally really broken out of, like, you know, in kind of a way like Robert Pattinson has. Like, okay, I don't associate you with playing like this, you know, fucking guy <laughs> yeah it's so funny that i think the like we saw the 50 shades of gray movies we recorded a podcast on it i think the character of christian gray has all the sexual charisma of a dead fish but you watch belfast and jamie jordan is like hot and gorgeous and katrina balf like incredibly hot yeah yeah i think and again i think that comes down to well, obviously in the script, but also what a director can do with people. And clearly he knew how to get like good work from them. And, um, or, you know, or also how he was able to do good work in the Barb and star movie yeah. where he's also like uh, pretty attractive. Like it's just, he's, you know, has like a lot of charisma, like that scene where he sings the, that's the everlasting love. Yeah. You know, it's very sweet. Uh, yeah, I, I was you know, this was a, it's funny to say like a movie that deals with the troubles is a feel good movie. That's like not, it doesn't seem like those two things mix together, but it, it, it somehow does, uh, in a way that's, uh, you know, very winning. Like this is a movie where the little moments are very rich and you, you feel like you're with, you feel like you're like really with that family for so long. And I could tell, I know why you got emotional near the end too. Yeah. I I love this movie. I knew from the trailers I'd be a sucker for this movie because I'm always down for tender Irish feelings. But <laughs> if only it had some more Celtic music. Yeah, I do. Well, like instead that. of uh, it's all Van Morrison all the time. But Is this the first movie on the list I actually watched from beginning to end? <laughs> I think it is. Yeah, I think so. Because I saw most of Nightmare Alley, but technically not all of it. You saw enough, I guess you could form an opinion, even though, yeah, you probably... you. If I asked you who Richard Jenkins was in that movie, you wouldn't be able to tell me. Well, I couldn't tell you the character's name. I couldn't tell you the names of any characters in that movie, because the characters suck. Yeah. But Belfast does not suck. Belfast is awesome. All yeah, right. and of course then... The next film on my ranking, we won't talk about too much because we reviewed it, which is Dune. And it's, uh, I think it wasn't too surprising that this would get some nominations, at least in technical categories. I, I was impressed to see that it's actually the second highest 
most nominated film. It has 10 nominations. Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, we both like this movie a lot. Uh, we, you know, pretty big fans, even though we have some reservations about some parts of it. Um, I, I saw somebody on Twitter saying, like, making the case that maybe Dune, you know, Dune should win Best Picture. I, I don't know about that. I could see why someone would say it. Maybe more because this is the one, you know, huge box office, you know, movie. But it doesn't seem like the kind of film that would get it. In part because it's also like, you know, the first part of a movie. Well, I said, I'm sure I said this when we recorded the Dune podcast. Denis Villeneuve makes the kind of movies that I normally don't like. I nor- He makes very, like, severe almost ponderous movies and normally i don't respond to that at all but when he does it i eat it up yeah yeah he 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 has a um there's just something about his approach that's so sincere too like in a way that's it's almost like the 180 of belfast where that's like a warm hug this is like a hug that will crush you (laughs) (laughs) this is a cold hug yeah this is like a hug from a harkonnen (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um yeah i'm in but i'm just uh yeah he his his style is just uh really some it's appealing even though like again like you would think like well what you know yeah his tone at times is very you know severe and someone used the word brutalist yeah which i guess you could also use i think it's the attention to detail I feel like that's what separates him maybe from other directors or films of this style is because you, it's so immersive the watching Dune that, you know, that's why it, it was probably a lot of people saw it because it seemed like, oh yeah, we should see this in a theater. You really, this is such a cliche, but you really do feel transported into a completely alien space when you're watching it. Mm-hmm. The, emotional rhythms of the film are alien the look of the film is alien um so we i'm not going to talk about this much i think the first like two-thirds of this movie are great for me the final third is kind of like a dull anti-climax and i wish we had seen more of house atreides on arrakis before the attack on them Mm. and if i were making this movie i would have ended the movie with the attack on House of Trades mm. and the killing. Yeah, see I watched when I watched the film a second time in theaters mm. and I actually liked the the last third more the mm. next time I watched it cuz I felt like no no this really is something that the film is building towards and you know seeing uh Paul actually go through this act in the desert with uh the Fremen like it is something that I think helps to make a good stop point for the movie. Because I think you needed to have a little bit more of him dealing with that, you know, struggle inside and, you know, who he is going to be. And um, maybe it's because I also knew it was coming Mm -hmm. that maybe that also made it a little bit more interesting. Where maybe the first time around, because it's such a long movie, Mm -hmm. maybe by a certain point you feel like, well, just get on with it. But some, you know, you there is a thing to say where it, when you watch a movie a second time, it can go by a lot faster. I look forward to watching this again. 
I like this movie a lot. Yeah, I'm probably I might even watch it a third time before uh, Oscar night. I always feel really guilty that when we reviewed this, I think I said it's only a three and a half star movie, and no, it's better than that. Yeah, it's definitely better than that. I was totally wrong. Mm -hmm. It's a good movie. Yeah. There's your power. This is only the beginning. <laughs>